Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip. Coming up on this episode of TWIP, Wakeham and Canon introduce exciting new products, more heated discussion around still and video convergence, and an in-depth interview with super shooter Joe McNally. All that and much, much more coming your way next on episode number 83 of This Week in Photography. Welcome to another exciting episode of This Week in Photography. We've got a packed show for you today and a star-studded lineup of co-hosts again. Today on the show, we've got uh, Alex Lindsay. Hey, Alex. Yo. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. Yo. <laughs> that yo sounded surprisingly similar to Alex's yo. Steve Simon. Can his yo sound differently? Yo. Yeah, it did sound a little different. Aaron Mailer. Yo. Nice. And me, Frederick Johnson. You're host for the show. We've got a, a lot of stuff to talk about today, but before we jump into it, I want to talk about our linking contest, and I'm going to turn that over to the lovely Alex Lindsay to explain. Why, thank you, Fred. Uh, <laughs> so we, the linking, <laughs> the linking, if you uh, link to twitphoto.com, you can win three of Scott's 88 Secrets books uh, or a free one-year premium subscription to lynda.com. So make sure to uh, check that out. You can get all the information at twipphoto.com. Also remember that Scott has an ongoing Aperture Nature Photography Contest. It's offering uh, $3,500 worth of prizes for each photographer who, win, uh, who wins. So uh, check that out. And once again, you can find all of that information at twipphoto.com. And I, am, I have the pleasure of going on the next one to, uh, to Yellowstone National Park. Get to hang out there and take pictures with who on the phone or who on the line here is actually going, to, going with me? Uh, Steve Simon will be there. I, I hope that geyser is turned on this time of year. <laughs> oh, the geyser. Oh, okay. <laughs> it sounded like you said you hope guys are as turned on. <laughs> Uh-oh. It's, it's all in the pause, Steve. Come on. <laughs> It's the syllable emphasis. I'm sorry about that. You know what? you on that kind of stuff. You got to be careful. <laughs> All right, Steve, be careful with that. Um, but let's jump. Let's jump into the news. There's a, there's a couple things that are are really hot that I wanted to talk about. And the uh, the first thing is Wacom. They introduced uh, an addition to their Intuos Four line. And Wacom. Uh, Wacom. Wacom. Wacom? Okay. I don't Wacom. know. Potato, potato. Wacom. I don't know. Wacom, Wacom. Wacom, Wacom. Everybody knows what it is. However you pronounce it, it's that tablet that most people have, or that a lot of people have, that it's a pressure-sensitive tablet. That You know what is interesting? Every time I hear the Wacom name, I think of this time I went into a large electronic retailer here in Silicon Valley who shall rename, who remain nameless. But I went in to buy a graphics tablet and they sent me to the aisle with paper tablets at an electronic store. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, customer service. Anyway, so uh, Wacom has introduced uh, the Intuos 4 line. And uh, uh, what are the, Aaron, what are the, uh, the, the big nuances of this release? Well, there's a, apparently a pretty significant increase to its sensitivity and the overall feel, but I think one of the most significant things is they've added OLED labels to it. 
so that the labels will actually change on the surface uh, according to context and to your settings. So you know, basically context buttons, essentially. But we're starting to see more and more OLED stuff coming about. Yeah, I've heard about this mention- for a while. Remember, remember, like what was it, like a year ago or so, or maybe more, they were talking about these newfangled OLED keyboards, and there were rumors yeah. that Apple was going to release one with the iMac, just a, a clear slate that when you turn on the computer, it configures to whatever app you're in, kind of like an iPhone. Whatever I happened think- to that? I think the big one that everybody was watching actually was released. It costs a small fortune at this point, um, but I'm, I'm, the entire surface of it, from what I recall, is actually programmable. Um, it, it weighs a ton. It costs a ton of money. Don't know what its lifespan is, too, as far as the OLED, but um, I, it's a great concept, but I don't. it hasn't taken off, at least not in a cost-effective way. So Wacom, Guys, I think, I- might be the first ones to, uh, to really nail that. Guys, how how could I have avoided using one of these tablets all these years? I know intellectually it makes total sense, and it's going to be so much better um, in terms of you know specific Photoshop work and all that. But I have not ever used one of these. Now, am I the only one? And and should I get one immediately? No, it's funny you say that. I I have two of them. Um, not this one, of course, but I have I have a small uh, little this little small one that you can throw in your laptop bag, and then I have a larger six by nine one, and they're great. But unfortunately, they sit on my desk all the time. I find I find myself either portable with my MacBook Pro and using the trackpad all the time, or if I'm plugged in at my desk, I'm just more comfortable with the mouse. And I don't I don't know if that's because I'm not the knee deep in graphic design artist that needs the pressure sensitivity and all that and the the pin tilt and all that but you know i just find that the mouse is a little bit more intuitive for me as a photographer what about you guys? i think it depends what you're doing you know it's it's a uh if you're, you're the kind of person that does a lot of retouching in photoshop and you need that level of control then that's where you want it i mean most of the people i know that that use this tablet regularly are the people that really are doing almost artistic kind of painting work even yeah and you know for them it's oh. like you, 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 you can't expect me to paint with the bar of soap right give me a pen yeah but yeah i don't you know i've, I've had them in the past i don't even have one right now they are great for doing that kind of stuff but if you're the kind of person that only does quick little retouching and, and painting out of stuff then you know you may not need it definitely okay, if you're doing any kind of heavy cloning or a lot of selection so if you're using the uh, the the path tool a lot. Uh, those types of things tend to be a lot easier to do with a uh, with a Wacom tablet. You know, we I I have um, I think I have a couple of the bamboos, a six by nine, a nine by twelve, and I have the one of the older L, LCD ones, which is magical when you're doing something like um, a 3D sculpting and ZBrush or something like that. Yeah, you can't not have it. Uh, the if you're not doing a lot of retouching, I don't think it would make a lot of sense for photographers who are just doing overall edits. But if you need to get in there and clean stuff up. Uh, it is very seamless, uh, especially when you're doing painting operations like cloning uh, or selections. Uh, that it, it's just much more seamless to use uh, a Wacom tablet. And uh, I think that if you don't get the, the Intuos, is I think is a little expensive. I think it's two or three hundred dollars. Is that right, Aaron? I don't have uh, the price. Actually, me about uh, I think the four by five Intuos three I have is was maybe two hundred. 250 something like that. I think the six, six by nine is like uh, I want to say 279, but I don't have the price right. right in front of me. The 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 thing that everybody I think should own is a, is one of the little bamboos. Uh, yeah. You know, they, they, they make this bamboo for like 69 dollars. Don't get the one with the mouse; you'll never use it. Um, the, there's a 69 dollar one without the mouse, and uh, uh, and it is I, it's just it's almost indestructible. I keep it in my laptop bag all the time. Uh, and it's and it's just really, really a, a great little thing, especially also the other thing I use it for. And this is something that photographers might want to use it for is 
a lot of us, you know, a long time ago when we used this thing called film, you know, there was the celluloid that people used in the last <laughs> century. In this, in the please, last please century. continue, Grandpa. <laughs> oh, back in the day, they had no, this thing called you know, there, there are a and, lot of our listeners that are filmites, I'm sure. So I know. Anyway, so, so anyway, but what would happen is, is you, you'd be sitting there and you'd, you'd look at, a, um, you know, contact prints or whatever, and you'd sit there with a wax pencil and, and sit there and circle stuff and move stuff around, or you'd look at a print and you'd mark up. I want to, you know, we want to move, <laughs> we want to move her eyebrows over here, or pull her chin in over here, or, yeah. or you know, and, and that is something that you open up. A, I do this all the time when we're doing work. We'll see an image, and I'll, that's what I carry my bamboo around for primarily, is just to sit there and mark up images that people are working on. Yeah. Just simply sketch over it like, this is what I want. I want this changed over here. I want that changed over there. And it's super fluid and super easy to do. As a minimum, uh, just as that markup and taking you know notes to send to somebody, it's a, it's a great tool. I wouldn't buy an Intuist to do that. But if you're doing any kind of heavy work, you're going to want to move to the Intuos line, and this four looks great. That's interesting because Vincent LaFerre, uh, I think it's Vincent LaFerre, one of, one, of the, one of the high-end photographers, I sat in on one of their talks a while back, uh, it, at, I think it was Photoshop World, and they were talking about using using the uh, these tablets as a way to do those image maps that you're talking about, Alex, in that you sort of just bring the image up and put up a layer in Photoshop and just circle and write notes about what you want to do to that image and then i think what they generally do after that is hand that file off to their assistants who then go ahead and follow and execute their instructions whether it be you know lighten up these bags under the eyes or you know whatever so and if you combine that with something like snaps or um or uh, i show you uh you know which are screen capture programs yeah and take if you're on a pc uh you can literally sit there and just talk and and as if you were having a meeting you just talk and sit there and, and scribble over things and move stuff over uh, and you will immediately get uh, a real, you know, you can communicate an enormous amount of information and, and codify it to some degree for whoever's going to be working on it. And it's just an extremely useful way to do it. It's a Monday yeah. night football kind of format. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and then just, just conversely, we, we had Rebecca on the show, the, the Flickr photographer. She doesn't like to be referred to as a Flickr photographer, but she's the photographer who's very popular on Flickr. Uh, she was saying during the interview, I think maybe it was before or after, but she was saying that she uh, doesn't use a mouse and she doesn't use a Wacom tablet for any of the, the projects that she works on. She does everything and everything that you see on Flickr from her has been done using her MacBook Pro and the touch t- on the, and the, uh, the tablet, you know, or the, uh, the little touch tablet on there. So she's uh, touchpad. touchpad. Sorry. Yeah. So she's uh, she's one of those people that. You know, you can do some amazing work just using the touchpad on the MacBook Pro. I have, I have three words for that. What? Repetitive, stress, injury. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, that's true. There is there's always that. That's, what, that's one of the things that Wacom has really, you know, has really impacted is a lot of people who are concerned about making sure that their wrists, I, have, I happen to, I kind of, kind of blew out my arm, um, you know, uh, doing too much computer graphics work at, uh, when I, back when I worked at ILM. And uh, and so, uh, you know, one of the things they trained us to do when we were when I was getting rehabilitated was to use a Wacom tablet a lot more because it's a lot less stress on your hand. Uh, if you feel like you're having any kind of pain in your hand or pain in your forearm, this is another reason to think about getting a tablet. Yeah. And uh, also in the news, uh, Canon has is released. What is it? A 15 megapixel sensor in their new EOS Rebel T1i, along with high definition video capture, which is uh, stirring things up a little bit and a precursor to some other stuff that we're going to talk about 
uh, in a minute. Um, but uh, what do you what do you guys think you about this? That, uh, I was gonna I say you can kind of put that HD in quotes. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, I just saw it. I, I read the spec and I was like, that's got to be a typo. Twenty frames a second. What, what are they? Twenty? It's like nine. I, I don't. It's a flip book, right? <laughs> Yeah, I was like, I don't understand. Like, why would you do that? It's like, well, we told them that 30 frames a second wasn't the right one. So they were like, ah, well, let's uh, do 20. Yeah. Like, 24 would be nice. Uh, it, it, it seems very arbitrary. I'm not sure exactly. The only reason I could think that they would do 20 is because if they did 24, everyone would go, so the the 5D Mark II does 30 and the Rebel does the right frame, frame rate of 24. That's yeah. the reason I that they went down to 20 is so that they wouldn't get whacked over the fact that a cheap camera is doing something that the that the high-end camera should do yeah well, well we, we've seen does. that before though with like the with the g9 versus the g10 and them the, the degrading the video capabilities of the new device over the small device or the older device ron yeah i, I think some of it is certainly a, a marketing thing and it also kind of points to the sense though that at least canon canon must at some level believe that more and more people are going to be just watching video on a computer and not trying to display it any other any place else because that's the only place you could watch it. You know, something shot at 20 frames a second. Appropriate if you got something like QuickTime Player that can do that frame rate. You know, you can't transfer it to DVD and watch it on your television without some noticeable ugliness being introduced. So, it, it, and, and it may be true. It may very well be that more and more people are just planning to watch their videos on their computer anyway. I think the vast uh, twenty majority, frames a second. I think the vast majority of people are watching most of the videos they shoot on their video camera or on their uh, still camera on a computer. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's interesting. I, yeah. I I didn't think about that because I do. You know, I have very split sort of ways that I consume video, and it's either I'm in the living room and it's Apple TV type stuff. It's either coming off of Apple TV or it's coming off of TiVo. And that's that's generally all I watch in the living room. Everything else, like all these little videos, they get passed around, of course, and um, at the computer. And even though the TiVo and Xbox and you know Apple TV, whatever, even though they can play YouTube video, I tried them once on each of those devices and haven't gone back. And I don't even watch YouTube video on my iPhone, so it's always on the computer. That's interesting. Yeah, so I, I think it's a, you know it, it is interesting. I do think we're going to get, and we'll talk about this a little later, but I, I do think we are going to get to a point where all these cameras have some form of video on them. I think that, that we are seeing this uh, kind of inevitable uh, addition to every camera out there. But should they? <laughs> <laughs> and that is the question. And with that, we'll jump into uh, uh, our sponsor, who's Squarespace. Uh, Alex, you want to talk a little bit about them? Yeah, so we are, uh, you know, uh, Squarespace is a new sponsor, which which we're really, you know, excited about, given the fact that we are doing a lot of uh, work with Squarespace. Of course, uh, Squarespace is a um, uh, Squarespace basically allows you to build your website or your blog. A blog, I mean, it does a lot more than that, but allows you to build out a website, uh, a web page or website uh, without having to do any deal with any of the hosting. Uh, deal with any of the coding. Uh, everything is pretty WYSIWYG. And, and I know, Aaron, you have been um, kind of digging into that, right? Oh, yeah, quite a bit. I have to say it's a seriously impressive interface. Um, it was almost a little disconcerting at first because uh, seldom do I use web-based you know, environments that feel so much like an application as far as the user interface. I mean, 
panels and fading and, and just beautiful, you know, GUI interaction essentially in the process of, of building a web page. So it's uh, it's a pretty amazing system and uh, we're putting together some nice stuff with it. I, I just so I keep hearing so many people moving over to this and I mean, you know, I, I was hearing a lot about it um, you know, on some of the, the podcasts and stuff. But, you know, that's just sort of an indication that they're good at marketing. But then when I started hearing a lot of people actually switching over to it and really loving it. So I, I haven't had a good excuse to really revamp my website yet, but I would definitely yeah, look I'm, into it. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm done. I mean, I, I, we've had so many troubles, uh, trouble. I've been having, I've had so much trouble getting my website really off the ground and getting it working and my own, my own little blog. Uh, and I don't want to deal with servers. I don't want to know whether we have the capacity to handle it. I don't, you know, this just gets back into the whole kind of cloud computing approach, which is let somebody else worry about the servers, you know, and the infrastructure. And and I think that I'm I'm quite happy kind of moving that direction. So I know my uh, hopefully next week my my very simple blog uh, will will be going up, and uh, hopefully we'll be doing some stuff with the show here as well. Where does where does Squarespace fit in with regard to the the wave that is WordPress and all the extensions and themes and and plugins and widgets that you can configure your website with using that service it, or is it is it targeted at the same audience those the savvy people or is it just I, I, the people that want to sign up i think i think that it doesn't have quite the same uh well actually i'll let aaron answer well i, I was going to say that they have a lot of very similar plugins and modules that they provide uh certainly some external ones you can plug in yourself through the ability to just you know dump raw HTML into sections, you can create little segments on the site uh, or containers on the site where you put HTML that's outside of the Squarespace realm. Uh, but the other thing I'll mention too that I noticed in working with with our version of it is that they do have a full importer uh, for bringing in WordPress and a couple other systems, if I'm not mistaken. So if you have an existing blog in one of those formats, you can use their common export format and, and use that to like bring it, your content in. You decide you don't like it, you can also export out. So nice. but anyway, to, not, to uh, not uh, belabor the point, I think I believe that the uh, – I'm afraid we had a little breakdown with our coupon code. But uh, I believe the coupon code is TWIP. So if you go to uh, Squarespace, you can, if you use the coupon code TWIP, uh, you can get 10% off if you are interested. Uh, so uh, check that out at uh, squarespace.com. One of the things, so continuing on with our, our previous discussion about video and <laughs> and still photography convergence, uh, one of our one of our listeners and a friend to the show, Stu, uh, sent in a message to uh, Stu. Was, and to put it in perspective, this is Stu Mashwitz. Uh, Stu uh, uh, was the CTO at uh, the orphanage and also uh, used to be my office mate at I. So, <laughs> so he's highly qu- highly qualified to be making these comments, right? <laughs> and we've had him on the show before too. He's, he's yeah, been on clip. Yeah. Uh, he's a brilliant digital artist. So, um, so, so Alex, Alex, you want to ex- explain what he said? Well, I'll let you explain <laughs> what he said. I'm, I'm, I'm hurt. I, but, Basically, you know, paraphrasing. I don't have the email up in front the, of me. He said the bullpucky word about about what I said. Yeah, he said he said the BS word about Alex and his is semi rant about convergence between still photography and videography. Which I'm not sure that was in context, but. But, uh, you know, he, he brings up a good point because I tend to fall on Stu's side. Not that Alex is full of BS, of course, oh, but, oh, well, me, but on the side of, of just, you know, I don't believe that the two are going to converge right now. So, well, oh, so let, me, let me read it. He said, you know, saying that photographers need to learn video. And this is from ProLost.com. So that's his, his blog, which is a great blog. If you're listening to this show, you want to go to ProLost and um, follow Stu's blog. It's fantastic. So it says, saying that photographers need to learn video because their cameras now feature video is like saying that you need to start a rock band because you bought an iMac that ships with GarageBand. <laughs> so 
you know, which I think is a great, you know, it's a great paragraph. Uh, so, uh, but there's a there's a really good breakdown of his opinion on on this um, this piece. I, I think that you know, for me, one of the things is is that I tend to approach things in prob- sometimes an overly practical sense of um, when I'm in Africa, what one of the things that I've noticed, and Steve might be able to correct me on this, but the photojournalists that I worked with five years ago were strictly photojournalists. Uh, I didn't see a single one the last in my last trip that wasn't shooting video and and photography. When they were sent there, they were expected to they were expected to gather information. Steve, yeah. you. I would agree with you, Alex. I mean, you know, it's 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 something that I think Stu's Stu's point is is well taken. Uh, no one's forcing anyone to get into video, and the art of still photography is something that can be pursued, uh, you know, to its maximum without ever having to play with video at all. Yeah. The reality, you're right, is that uh, you know I myself, my last trip to Rwanda, ended up having to compromise, and I see it a bit as a compromise because you've got to do your stills and then you have to do some video, and it's I find it very difficult to do the, both of them at the same time, although I don't have one of these cameras yet that uh, allows me to do video. So maybe that might change the tune. So, Alex, uh, yeah, Alex, and, and to, to both of you, Alex and Steve. So, Steve, you, you represent the photojournalist, you know, the guy in the field that's been shooting forever and knows you know, a, a lot, if not all there is to know about light, you know, and capturing it in the field. Alex... You're on the video side and the motion side of it, and and you're intimately familiar with lighting from a cinematic standpoint. The two, motion, lighting for motion and lighting for a still photograph, do they converge? And can you expect a photographer or a still photographer that is, you know, the Steve Simon that knows how to, to, to change his aperture to get the background in the correct focus and... You know, can you expect this guy to say, okay, now that car is moving and where ordinarily I would do a rear curtain sync to get the motion behind him. Now I have to think about the motion, you know, and I have to light accordingly and then switch my brain back to still photography to go do the rest of this job. Is that is that a reasonable thing to ask? Yeah, well, I think that it's I think it's going to be continually asked. I, I here's the the thing is, is that I, I do agree with Stu to say that you don't have to move into into uh this kind of dual purpose, you know, in, in the visual effects area, uh, you don't have to you learn everything. You can just be a great character animator or a great, uh, or a great compositor. The issue is, is that, uh, as if you want to be competitive, a lot of times, you, you know, the, the way the market's moving in, mo- in both of these markets is that, is that knowing both makes you much more competitive. Yeah, so that, my yeah, argument- that, that's, yeah, that was the, that was the takeaway I had. That's, that's why I didn't, I kind of feel like Stu was misinterpreting what you said a little bit. In, in the sense that the way I remember you stating it was that there is going to be an expectation in the professional realm that certain photographers uh, are going to be expected to also shoot video in many situations, specifically yeah. uh, photojournalists and, and also potentially wedding photographers. That's not to say that you can't be a photographer that just says, I'm not going to do that. And, and Stu's right, that the one doesn't necessarily fall into the other just because the hardware can do it. Yeah, that's, that's my yeah, point. That's my point, because that's like saying, you know, uh, someone that's been drawing for the newspaper doing cartoon strips, not not to simplify it, but someone has been doing cartoon strips for 30 years, suddenly someone throws an animation program in front of them and saying, okay, now you know those, those, the cartoon you've been drawing? Animate it and make it work in motion. You know, it's, it's, 
Well, but I think, I, I think just, the thing is, I was, I was just going to say that uh, you know, from my perspective, um, there there are two ways of going about this. I mean, there's the practical way where you're asked to provide some video footage uh, that will be used in a web web space. You know, aside from your still photos, but then there are photojournalists who not only have to uh, learn how to use video, and there is a learning curve, and the lighting. You know, if you're doing interviews and so on, you you have to make sure that you you have that just so. But then, if you're looking in the multimedia realm, where you're going to try and tell a story using stills and video and sound. Um, it also affects the way you use the still camera as well. You might yeah. be shooting a lot more. You might be uh, wanting to get you know, a lot more close-ups because you know you're going to insert it in a multimedia piece. So it's, it's kind of inventing a little bit of a new language or maybe something that the, the video people have, have been using for a long time. Yeah, and that's that's the other piece of it. Capturing, and this is just my rant, and maybe I'm just old, but you know, capturing is one thing, but the post production on the back end, you know, people people complain about Photoshop being so deep and so involved that they only scratch ten percent of it, and now we're going to layer on Premiere and Final Cut Pro and perhaps even After Effects on top of that in terms of the gear that or the the tools that photographers need to know and then layer on top of that shameless plug for Drobo that you have to store this stuff somewhere <laughs> you know so how how do you reconcile all that when you're a photographer that's like you know all I need to know is I need some 8 gig compact flashcards and I import them into Aperture or Lightroom or whatever and I back them up to my hard drive of choice you know Now I have these multi-terabyte files or gigabyte files that I have to somehow deal with, and let alone edit. So, and I think yeah, the editing is really the key part because the 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 skill uh, of shooting video for most people is part of that. Is you know you have to take into account the editing side of it, and unless you are the kind of guy that has an editor behind you doing this, you you can't just go out and shoot video. Otherwise, it just looks like, you know, here's the home movie where I I just let the camera run for four hours, and nobody's going to want to watch that. So you can't just shoot video uh, in in a vacuum without acknowledging that the editing part of it is, is equally important to it. Yeah, I think it's also important to you know when you have to edit your own work, uh, you get really good at shooting it because you suddenly realize, oh, I can't believe I left. You know, I didn't, I didn't give myself B-roll that was going to allow me to actually cut away from this, or I didn't, you know, get this right. This angle doesn't work, and and the next time you do it, you get a lot better at your shooting. Um, but the the thing I would say is that I, as I said. If, if you specialize in I will do still photography, I'm not going to do anything else, you can definitely do it, but it requires you to be at a much higher level uh, of skill than you were when you, um, uh, if you were able to do a bunch of different things. Now, it, you know, the, the argument is, you know, jack, jack of all trades, ace of none, but, exactly. but the, the issue is, is that there are, um, you know, I think that the, the, when, when a lot of newspapers and magazines and other things, they're, they're, you know, their budgets aren't getting larger. So when they look at wanting to cover Darfur or they want to look cover, uh, you know, Tanzania or something or, or even something in Europe, they, having to send two or three people out uh, is something that, you know, they'll do right now. But what, and, and, and I definitely am not saying that people should people need to worry about this today. What I'm talking about more is five or ten years from now. Uh, you know, all these cameras are going to have these uh, all these capabilities, and there's going to be a generation of people who come who who grew up with computers, who grew up with Photoshop, who grew up with video cameras and still cameras and flips and you know all the stuff, and they're going to be able to do all of these things. It's not going to seem like a, an added on thing for them. It's just going to be oh yeah, I use media, 
Yeah. And, 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 and so the thing is, is that as photographers, I think that people listening to the show that do this as a business need to keep that in mind, that these, this next generation is coming. You know, yeah. And that, and that when, when a magazine has the option of hiring someone who only shoots stills or someone who can shoot, edit, video, you know, do videos, edit it, put it, put it up and post it to the web, you know, that, that if they may not even be as good as a photographer – but yeah. they will get the job. In my yeah, and that's happening right now, Alex, because I mean, this whole economic downturn has just accelerated that whole savings idea. And it just, you know, they'll, they'll suffer a little quality overall. Most, many of the publications, uh, I shouldn't say all, but, but everybody's hurting. So, so you know, more for the money uh, is something that they're looking for. Yeah, and that, that Alex, something you said, uh, you know, a, a couple minutes ago struck a chord. The, I think the fact that, People are going to be required to shoot all this stuff. I'm not arguing that. I think that's true. But what's scary is they're going to be the jack of all trades and master of none. So the technology, the fact that the technology is increasing and these cameras are becoming more and more capable, it means that the art and the quality of the imagery is going to start sliding down because you can't be a master of everything if you're expected to do everything. You can do everything good enough instead of stellar. And that's my, think, that's my fear. I think the, 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 the issue is that, is that I, I think, like when you're talking about the, to me, um, doing who does both, and I wouldn't say that I'm a master of either, uh, but the, uh, the one thing that I would say is that for me, the, the, the shift from video to, from still to video is not nearly as much as, the, as from a still animation, uh, you know, still comics to animated comics. Because what you're looking at is, um, when you're going from the, most of the framing and the lighting quality is pretty much the same between the two. When we do still photography stuff and we do video, we do pretty much the same. Now, we don't use flashes. We use, you know, continuous lights. So that's the, uh, you know, a distinction. But and there's a different level of requirement, but it's a technical requirement. The quality of of what we of how we light somebody is very, I mean, identical between what we're doing with still and what we're doing with, uh, with video uh, for most of the shooting that we do. Um, the framing is largely the same, you know, giving people nose room or, uh, you know, the two-thirds rules and all of these things are, are stuff that we still follow the same rules. Now, mm -hmm. the only thing that we start changing is we now have to, to follow all those rules over a 10-second or 20-second or two-minute um, you know, uh, uh, video, ra you know, rather than just for a momentary click of the shutter. So, you know, it, it's not, I, I think people also shouldn't be too scared of a lot of these things because, yeah, it, it, it does take a lot of uh, skill and a lot of practice to get to a point where you're shooting handheld and it's MTV style and you're moving all around. And, uh, you know, even if someone looks at our, at, at the TWIP, our twip photo videos that we put up, you know, my brother Joe, when he started a year ago doing those was, you know, was not at the level he is now. And, and a year from now, he'll be at a much higher level again because he has to shoot, you know, 30 of these a month, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, and, 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 uh, uh, you know, but that's, but he's also, you know, he loves photography. He's a, he is a, uh, you know, he is that next generation. I mean, the, most of the guys that work in our office are that next generation where Joe is a very good photographer, but he's also can pick up and do handheld video. He can then edit it and animate it and, and, uh, you know, add graphics to it and all those other things. And, but to me, that's what's, you know, he's in his mid twenties and that's what's coming. 
So that's you know, we're, we're looking at the dawn of the the multimediographer instead of the pho- photographer or videographer, right? And, and, and you know, it's 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 an interesting sort of uh, if you look at the still photography world, um, just among still photographers, generally speaking, the ones we know are not generalists. They're known for a certain kind of photography or a certain kind of style. So in a way, this kind of goes against uh, the idea that you could become known for your vision and style by, you know, mastering all this stuff. Although- and I think, but I think, I think that you can still do that. So I, I, I do think that you could be, I'm only a photographer and you could be a great, great photographer uh, doing a certain style and you could, and your business will be fine. What I'm thinking about is that there are, that's going to be a handful of people. You know, it's not yep. going to be, when you're, when, when we're talking to the, the, you know, this is a, a huge industry with lots and lots of people who are not like that. <laughs> or, you know, they're they're paying their bills with photography. Um, yeah, I think just not, you can you can be a, you can be a very specific kind of photographer, even right. You can just be known as a landscape photographer or, or a celebrity photographer. Or something. I mean, Steve, you just did a, a celebrity photo shoot. You know, what with the you didn't have any request to shoot video on that, right? Uh, no, I didn't. Actually, I, I thought I would just tell the viewers because I had an opportunity to photograph uh, Yoko Ono, who we all know. Wait, the the Yoko Ono. The Yoko Ono. Uh, The reason was, uh, in Montreal, my hometown, uh, she's having kind of a retrospective uh, art show of her work at the the Museum of Fine Arts. And uh, so there are the three Montreal publications, the newspapers, and one of them hired me to photograph her. So... We each had 15 minutes with Yoko Ono, which is not a lot of time. Uh, of course, that would likely be impossible to both do both video and, and still. It's hard enough to do still because you want to maximize that time. Um, but it was, it was uh, a great experience because, of course, Yoko Ono, I mean, she's uh, a lot of us would like to meet her. Um, she was very sweet, very nice, very cooperative. Um, but in that 15 minutes, interestingly, um, it, it, it gave me a taste of, of kind of the publicists and the control that celebrities have because newspapers, generally speaking, journalism does not allow the people that we cover to sort of dictate um, what gets in the paper. But in this instance, in order to have the opportunity to photograph Yoko, um, the Gazette, the Montreal Gazette had to agree to um, – allow her to see all the images that were shot and she would have final approval of what would get into the paper. So that is very unusual for uh, journalistic publications, not so much in, in the general magazine world, but it was a real interesting thing to see just the kind of control. Um, she's so sweet and nice. Uh, you'd think that uh, maybe she needs that kind of tough handling because maybe people would be take advantage of her. But I, I suspect she's really, really smart as well. And ultimately, uh, that comes from her. So again, the photographer didn't really have a lot of uh, control over it. But in the 15 minutes, she was very cooperative. We tried a few things. We're in this uh, photo studio. I brought my pro photo and one light and a mm. big umbrella. So, so when you when you say you had 15 minutes, though, was that yeah? Did that include setting up the light time, or did you have some time to get things? Sort of in place. Very good point. Um, I did have some time to get things in point because, as much as I had, fi- the photographers for each of the publications had 15 minutes. The interviewers also had 15 minutes. So the whole thing. I mean, it's it's really not a lot of time uh, to get too far uh, to get into too many things. So I was able to, uh, because the light was set up, I was able to get a variety of different things. And we actually, she changed uh, twice. But, but inter- you know, she's 76 year old, years old, guys. She's 76 oh. years old. And, and I don't – I think she looks – I mean, she's, she's hot for a 76-year-old. Can I say that? You can say that. <laughs> we won't edit yeah. it. 
<laughs> no, she she really does look good. She really looks good. But in the end, um, uh, she's I guess her, her and her people are very very. Um, and and why not control your image? I suspect if you have that opportunity, but but they're very very specific at the things that they don't like, and uh, and uh, you know in the end the pictures that they approved, and there are only a few of them out of the the ninety or a hundred frames that I had shot, uh, were not the ones I would have picked. I think she looked great in a lot of the images. Um, but but it was it was it was very interesting. Uh, I'd never really been. I've I've shot a lot of celebrities, but not where I've had to give up that kind. Where they've had because I wasn't working for them, and and they had full approval and control over what a publication was allowed to publish. And that yeah. was a little bit new. Now, Steve, are are people going to be able to see these images anywhere? Um, well, <laughs> if you uh, she hasn't approved too many, but but I, I'm happy to uh, you know. I, I don't know. I, I guess I could uh, post them. Maybe we can post them to the Twip site. I don't. I don't really know how to proceed with this. Well, just make a gallery. Make a gallery, and we'll link to it. Okay, that that sounds like a good idea. You have, you know I how to you know you how to use aperture, right? Yes. As a matter of fact, okay, I'll do an aperture gallery. You guys could link to it until I get the lawyer's letter from Yoko's people. <laughs> I was going to say you may want to ask permission first, but maybe you'll be asking for forgiveness afterwards. I don't know. There you go. You, you'll you'll notice that I did not. Uh, you kind of deflected that. Uh, we'll put it on our site. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll, 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 okay, you could have it in your site, Alex. I mean, there's no, no, no. there's no bad publicity, is there? Um, yes, there is. Yeah. <laughs> That's a myth. The publicity that gets you, uh, you know, gets your house taken away is bad. I think <laughs> so. But, but she was great. We talked a little. I'm from Montreal. We talked a little bit about Montreal, and of course, Montreal holds a, a soft spot for her because that's where they did. Um, the Give Peace a Chance song recorded in that hotel room at the Mount Royal Hotel in Montreal. So uh, she's got, uh, I think, some very fond remembrances of 1969 in Montreal. Very cool. Well, Steve, let's uh, since you're on a roll here, what's uh, what's your pick of the week? Oh, my pick of the week. Yes, um, I was listening to NPR and uh, they talked about this uh, photographer. His name is Julius Schulman, and he's an architecture photographer. On, uh, arguably the architectural photographer. The man is 98 years old, guys, and he's still going strong. He's still shooting. And, uh, you know, he's the guy that Frank Gehry said uh, got him his first client. And then when Gary graduated from architecture school, uh, Julius Shulman, the photographer, got him his second client. Um, his picture in Los Angeles in 1960 of this glass house is, is sort of the iconic image of Los Angeles. And if we link to this, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll probably be familiar with it. Um, it you know, he talked about that, that, that particular picture where he used a two-light setup and uh, a five-minute long exposure to allow the, uh, the lights from, from Los Angeles to, to record on the film. But uh, it was, it, it's, it's just, he's inspiring. He's inspiring. Um, and here's something that, that he says. Um, people, people aren't thinking anymore. Um, they're just shooting. If you can fill up a memory card with a thousand images until you get perf- uh, one perfect, after all, why stop to carefully compose? And, and still, at 98, he's still shooting. I, I, I heard, if I remember correctly, he charges about $6,000 to come in and photograph your home. Uh, in a nine-hour shoot that they pointed to, he shot 11 frames, um, which 
I think is, wow. is, is, is a good kind of remembrance that, yeah, we, we have digital, we can shoot a lot. I tend to shoot a lot. I think we all do. Um, but it does, it's not a substitute for, for thinking about what you're doing and being very uh, direct. So I think he's an inspiring guy. There's a new documentary that's come out. Um, it's not, I don't think, it's, it's, it's doing, going to film festivals. I'm sure eventually it'll wind up on DVD. But uh, this guy is definitely worth um, finding out about. Very cool. Aaron, what's your what's your tip or pick? Mine's uh, mine's a quick one this week. I'm I'm still making up for putting everybody in a coma on Google Reader a couple weeks ago. So, <laughs> the, uh, uh, if you got to charge a lot of AA or AAA batteries in your photography equipment, which I do for my uh, for my speed lights, my 580X2s and things like that on my on my Canon, and I can burn through quite a few batteries, um, you know, doing a, a day's event shoot. Um, the battery charger that I've come to uh, to really like is uh, the Maha MH-C801D. We'll put all that in the show notes with a link to uh, to one of the vendors where you can purchase it. Um, the really nice thing about this uh, unit is it'll charge eight batteries at once. Um, they don't have to be in pairs. You can you can mix double A's and triple A's and so on along the way, but eight full cells at one time, and it's got a really wonderful conditioner, gentle charger, uh, rejuvenator, so on and so forth, and it's a nice little LCD display display on the front tells you you know specifically what's happening with each battery and with uh with nim cells in particular um you really do need to uh kind of be a little careful with them sometimes so uh the really rapid chargers that make your batteries get really steaming hot are not good for their lifespan so uh making use of one of these units will get a whole lot more life out of your nim batteries um it'll do NICADs as well but uh highly recommend it What's a what's a good sweet spot for quick chargers? Because I've seen them at fifteen minutes, and I've seen like the ones that I just bought yesterday are eight hours. <laughs> so this, what's, this what's one actually will do them. This will do them gently uh, in an hour. It'll do them uh, very very gently in a two hour cycle, hmm. um, and really not stress them out too badly. And if you use the reconditioning cycle I mentioned, it could take you know hours, several hours, or overnight or something. But what that does is it gently brings the batteries up, it discharges them completely, and then brings them back online with a with a good full charge. Um, the ones that do 15 minutes, and I was using one like that before, those are the ones where you get third-degree burns when you pull the batteries out because yeah. they're just so piping hot. And all that heat is is pretty much destroying the structure of the battery. Right. What would you say the, the, the life degradation is for using the, uh, the quick chargers over using I, a longer one? Any idea? I would Honestly, I, I really couldn't say, to tell you the truth. I mean, I, I'm, I may be able to tell you more. I've added new batteries, um, you know, when I purchased this back a while back, which have never been used in a fast charger. So maybe after a while, I give you an idea, kind of how much uh, how much life I got out of them. Cool, good enough. Ron Brinkman, yo, what's your pick of the week? <laughs> yo, you know, I, I've I've heard about this thing many times. I'm sure our listeners have too. There's this uh, tripod company called uh, Joby that makes a thing called a Gorilla Pod. And uh, I suspect several of you guys have got one of these already. I was sort of late to the party. I'd always looked at it, and uh, it looked kind of gimmicky to me. It's this, it's this uh, it's not even really a tripod, only in the sense that it has three legs, but they're all completely articulated. So you can bend them in any direction. You can wrap them around objects. The, the typical demo that they show is sort of wrapping it around a pole uh, so that you can you know attach your camera to kind of any handy device uh, or handy object there and you know like i said i'd kind of looked at it and there's a lot of these small tripods out there and i was like oh you know one more little gimmicky one but i finally went ahead and bought one and i gotta say i'm actually pretty impressed it's uh, it's really well designed a lot of little stuff on it like there's a a quick release for effectively the the head that uh, 
that sits on top of it and then the little release plate that clamps to your camera. So you can do what you do with a regular full-size tripod. And uh, there's even a little lock on there, which I didn't discover until I was until I had sort of accidentally turned it to be locked so the quick release wouldn't come out. And I didn't realize that, and I was trying to pull it out, and I couldn't do it. And I'm like, you know, great. I just bought this thing a day ago, and I've already broken it. I can't even get the thing out of there until I realize this little twisty thing unlocked it. So yeah. I, I, I kind of picked this up because I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, a travel tripod. And I'm almost thinking that if you got a nice pair of legs, you can maybe get away with not even having a head on your tripod and just use a, a, a Joby to stick on the top of the legs or something. So mm-hmm. I'm playing around with it, but I got to say I was actually pretty impressed. And the smallest one for, for a little mini, uh, mini camera is I think like 20 bucks or something. And it goes up. They make some, some beefier ones as well. And I may get one of those to play around too. I have, I, I did, I almost bought these, the, uh, like whatever the titanium or stainless steel one, uh, over the week. Oh, I was at B and H, uh, yeah. over the weekend and, uh, almost picked one up because it's the only one I don't have. So it's a titanium stainless steel gorilla pod, really? I don't know whether it's titanium or stainless steel, but it's like a metal gorilla pod. Jeez, it's the, it's the big monster one that they you know you can put uh, basically a film camera or a high end video camera on yeah. as well. They have they have yeah. a range. They go you know there's that really high end one. There's some middle range ones. that's either the uh, designed for a, a small SLR with a regular sized lens on it, and they also have one that's a little bit. Up from that, that is designed to hold a full-size SLR with a, a zoom lens on it. So it's it's got a good range. Excellent, Mr. Lindsay. What is your pick of the week? So as I said, I was at uh, at what I what I uh, I like to sometimes call the photography mecca, although it's kind of funny to call it mecca because it's run by Hasidic Jews. But uh, <laughs> I went to B and H Photo uh, in New York, which is um, so much fun. Uh, if, if, I know a lot of us see B and H on the web. Uh, if you ever in New York, uh, it is worth just walking in, just to look around. They have this little yeah, transport. Leave, leave your leave your credit card in the car, though. Oh, for sure. Oh my gosh! I mean, it, it, so I spent some money there, um, and uh, one of the things, one of the many things that I bought while visiting B and H Photo, uh, was this fifteen uh, ten. It's a Pelican case. It's a fifteen ten carry on case. So Pelican, you know, of course, makes these crazy, indestructible, uh, watertight cases. And we needed one for one of our cameras. And so I got it and it's got, it comes with a little insert. So you can get it with all the nice little photography insert that's built into it. And, uh, with that, it is just a fantastic hard case, uh, especially when you're traveling, you know, it's lock up, you know, you can uh, get, it's got uh, places built in so that you can lock it down if you need to. And it's just the right size that you can use it as a carry-on. So uh, a lot of time, and that's the way we use it. One of the things that we've had, and the, one of the reasons that I got it, was because we were doing. We do a lot of traveling. Um, uh, we were in New York last week. I'll be in London next week. And you don't. We don't want to. Uh, we don't want to check our cameras. And so we end up putting them in camera bags, and then and then humping them around all over the airport and getting really tired because we don't have like roll on. And so this is a nice roll. It has the little, the little handle and the, and the wheels and it's really hardened so that if for some reason you needed to check it, uh, you would be able to. And a lot of times what we'll do is we'll pull the camera out, put it in a little bag and carry it with us and then keep the rest of the gear that isn't as important and, uh, and throw it into the, uh, and throw it in. And sometimes you just get to a point where they won't let you carry it on for whatever reason. Uh, at least you have something that is going to give it a, a fair level of protection. Uh, if you, if, if that needs to happen, and yeah. so um, it, is a, it is a great 
Uh, we're really happy with the case. Um, it's about $160 with the ph- photography inserts uh, built into it. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cool little, it's watertight, crush-proof, and dust-proof, say on the website. Very nice. Yeah, just, just, just so you know, why I need an economic stimulus package is because I live on 24th Street and 9th Avenue, and B&H is on 34th Street and 9th Avenue, and the, <laughs> Apple, the Apple store is at 14th Street and 9th Avenue. So I am ground Ow. zero of Ow. all that stuff. Well, yeah. maybe you just need an intervention, Steve. <laughs> I think that's more what I do. Well, speaking of gear, Aaron, uh, it, so the, you had some experience with the lens rental folks over there. Oh, yeah. And how was that experience? I know you talked about them a while back, and we had some recent conversations with them, too. They were my, my pick quite a while back, um, and I had, a, a, again, a wonderful experience with them when I rented lenses for the Obama inauguration. Uh, so I've always been thrilled with them um and uh they uh, contacted me recently and said uh, through you know through mention of lens rentals which has been purely just a uh, you know a mention of appreciation as a customer on here um they have received quite a few rentals from our listeners and uh, they wanted to to thank everybody for that so they have actually set up a discount code for twip listeners so uh, those of you who are looking to rent lenses bodies anything like that for upcoming events or trips or to as i've recommended before to uh, to try out gear uh, that you maybe can't afford or don't think you need to purchase or you want to have a trial run with it before you uh, make the investment um, if you uh, go to lensrentals.com when you do your checkout put in a discount code of twip5 that's t-w-i-p numeral five and you'll receive a five percent discount off any of your rental fees uh-huh. i think fred you've got a lot coming up too in terms of uh, lens rental, uh, I do. Yeah, so I'm looking at. I haven't actually made my selection yet, but uh, I'm looking at picking up a lens. Uh, the guys over at Lens Rentals have, have sent me an email, letting me know, giving me some options on what to buy because I don't own any really long glass. I have a seventy to two hundred two point eight, but that's the longest glass that I have. And for this nature workshop that we're going on, I'm looking at getting something. Uh, very, very substantial, you know, like Scott Bourne shooting little birds from five miles away, substantial. So um, I'm looking to the lens rental guys to uh, to help me out and not break the bank while I'm doing it. So it looks like a, the perfect solution for the situation. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, Alex, um, you further my theory that you can never have too many camera bags. Is that not the case? My gosh, I, we just... <laughs> On absorbing camera bags, it, it's uh, uh, just wanted to mention that because I we know it's true. Yes, my my, my girlfriend doesn't agree with that, but I think we know it's true. <laughs> you know, and you always find something to do with the old ones too. It's not like they just sit around empty. I mean, they're they're just they're holding something else. It's very true. I have them all piled up in a room in the house, and my cat sleeps on them. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't do that. There's a thing about a thing I have about dander. <laughs> yeah, she's dander free. We had her genetically engineered, so she's good. <laughs> so my pick of the week is something that is, uh, you know, it, it it actually goes with the today, with today's guest, Joel McNally. He's uh, he has pushed me over the edge in terms of Nikon speed lights. Now, I already have a or, or I already had a Nikon SB eight hundred speed light, and I just sort of used it occasionally, never for any you know in studio or really serious things. Um, but uh, being exposed to Joe McNally, David Hobby, and reading Joe's book and watching their videos has made me understand the power of the Nikon creative lighting system. Steve, I'm sure you're very familiar with it. But 
reading those those things and sort of getting into that world and understanding how far flash technology has come pushed me over the edge to pick up a SB 900, which is my pick of the week, Nikon's flagship speed light, which is it's just an amazing device. And I feel like I've lost like five years of time because you know, up till now I've been doing sort of traditional flash photography with they say if I set up a model or something, I would. Yes, I would meter. I would meter the model and then set up my lighting ratios and then shoot, typically on manual mode. But with these things, all that's out of the window. Uh, Steve, Steve you've, have you played with the, with the CLS system at all? Well, I tell you what, I, I, I like you, Fred, uh, I, I, I try and avoid flash as much as I could. And, and I do tend to use studio flashes. But I am moving in that direction. I am, I am riding the wave that everybody else. It just, it just makes so much sense because they're small. They're relatively inexpensive. You can carry a few of them around and you can create these amazing things and guys like Joe McNally as you say the strobist David Hobby are are sort of on the the forefront of this huge uh, interest because that's been an area I think a lot of photographers have always wanted to learn more about controlling lights and and maximizing lights and supplementing light and it's been the area that has been a little more difficult for for many of us to to really kind of crack but with this with equipment like this and and guys like that and their blogs and their books and their workshops uh i think uh we're gonna I, I think it's a great thing and i'm i too am i'm gonna explore more on that yeah yeah it's it's crazy i would highly recommend checking out the the materials that are out there or, or actually just head over to to strobus.com i think it might be strobus.blogspot.com but uh that's david hobby's blog and they go into all things off-camera photography related it's a, it's it's the go-to place and it's one of my top bookmarks so definitely check that out so today's photo assignment, or actually the, the, we're in the final week or week four of the current assignment, which was complex or complex, however you want to say it. Alex, how, how are you pronouncing that? Well, I, I think, it, I think it, it, there's a big meaning difference. <laughs> if, if it's potato, complex, potato again, right? <laughs> if it's complex, it means one thing. If it's complex, it means something completely different. Yeah, we're going to leave that out because we, we got you in trouble last time we talked about this. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to stay out. Of yeah, yeah, you stay out of this one. So, uh, yeah, so that we're in week four or the final week of the assignment complex. So if you haven't done so already and put in your submission, please do so. Head over to uh, Aaron. Where can they go to uh, to stick in their submissions? Uh, there would be the uh, TWIP Flickr discussion group um, is one area, but also the the actual uh, TWIP contest area or assignment area that we have um, on Flickr, and we have a link in the show notes and on the blog. And Aaron, you want to talk about the latest poll and the results? Yeah, the, uh, the poll we had for last week was uh, what topic or genre got you into photography, which turns out was a little bit of a variation on one we had done before. And uh, I've also seen uh, that I probably left some categories out, namely sports and architecture, which I apologize profusely for. But uh, among the options that we did give, uh, the winner by a hair was uh, landscape and nature photography at 30.2%. Um, and just below that uh, was kind of the catch-all, I shoot everything, it's all good, 293 uh, Portraiture and people at 169 Scenic travel at 124 Documentary at 6.1. And we're down into the... 2% or less on still life, abstract, and wedding photography. So I find wedding photography interesting to be down at the very bottom at 1.2%. Wow, look at that. Well, I don't think it's something that you get into, you know, photography doing wedding. And I don't think you jump right into doing that. Hopefully not, because there'd probably be a lot of disappointed brides <laughs> out there. <laughs> That's right. 
Yeah, yeah, but people are marrying two or three times, so you know, <laughs> you a couple tries you to get, get it right. Get it right. Yeah, I think on that last wedding, it'll just be like an elope, right? Justice of the peace thing. They don't need a photographer. <laughs> well, on to the interview. Today's interview is with, as I mentioned earlier, Mr. Joe McNally. He's one of the most influential photographers working today. Joe's done some amazing work, both photographically and in the area of educating people on technique, both just ph- photographic technique and using small strobes, etc. Uh, he is uh, he's just released his latest book. I think it was last month. It's called The Hot Shoe Diaries. It's available on Amazon.com right now and through Peach Pit Press at peachpitpress.com. And Joe's personally changed the way that I shoot and has cost me a lot of money as I'm now, as I said earlier, addicted to buying these Nikon speed lights. I've got two of them already. So without further ado, Mr. Joe McNally. Okay, so I'm here with Mr. Joe McNally. I've got the the pleasure of pinning him down for a couple of minutes to uh, pick his brain about a couple of things. Most importantly, I think, at least right now, uh, is the the release of his amazing new book that I'm looking at right now, The Hot Shoe Diaries. Uh, Hey, Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. And you've been on TWIP before, sir. You're you're kind of a TWIP veteran. Uh, we We had you on, what was it, like six months ago or something? It's about six six months ago. It was pretty lively, as I recall. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, we had we had the the group of of guys asking you questions left and right. So now I had the privilege of just having my list of questions in front of me and the man on the other end of the line. So, <laughs> oh lord, <laughs> <laughs> you're in trouble, Mister McNally. <laughs> So, all right, here we go, I guess. Yeah, exactly. No, no, it's all good. So my my first question is just, you know, I'm a I'm a big fan, of course. Been following you on your blog, watching your tutorials on um on Kelby training, etc. Even seen some YouTube videos that you've put up there. So you're really active uh getting yourself out there using new media and that sort of thing. How how did just rewinding, how did you get started in photography? Oh lord, it's, you know, if you want to hark back that that far you're talking about flash powder i think uh, frederick um but um no it's 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 been a long you know and wonderful occasionally strange trip uh for sure if you had told me at the beginning of my career when i was a basic black and white um street photographer in new york working for newspapers and wire services that nowadays i'd be shooting you know ones and zeros and have these this fancy camera called a d3 and all of this wireless communication and all of this kind of thing that, you know, dominates photography now. If you had told me I'd be engaged in that back then, I would have said you were crazy. But it's, you know, things move fast. So you've seen it go from, and I've been I've been in photography for, I think, like 19, 20 years, and I've seen a, a few changes, and I'm sure you've seen a few more, but what... What strikes you at this point in your career as being kind of the, the, the biggest thing that has changed the way that you perceive photography? I think uh, the when I started, that's a really good question. I, I think when I started, photography had a certain rarefied atmosphere about it. It was uh, perceived perhaps as being complicated or, or, or difficult and, uh, you know, the serious endeavor in photography was reserved for those dedicated few or maybe the unlucky few, you know, <laughs> to labor away at, at the, you know, in dark rooms and chemistry and, and uh, the, the vagaries of the older cameras and exposure and all the uncertainties that uh, attended photography as, as it came along through 
the time that I've been involved in it, which I would, I would date calling myself a professional photographer back to, say, 78. So, you know, we are looking at, at, at 30 years here. And, uh, now there's this amazing, I call it the democracy of digital, that has spread the passion for photography among thousands and thousands, millions, you know, who knows how many numbers of people. Uh, and the, the overall enthusiasm, enthusiasm for photography has just gone through the roof. And the numbers of participants and the amount of good work uh, is pretty astonishing. Now, do you do you think that democratization is is a good thing? I mean, is it you know it was kind of like the desktop publishing re- revolution when ev- suddenly everyone could be a graphic designer, and we saw a whole lot of bad design out there. You know, are, are we feeling the same thing, or is it just now artists that were were would have been stifled before can now voice their or show their art? There's two sides to that uh, coin, to be sure. I, I think uh, digital photography and the, and the sort of rampant interest in it and the availability of it and the, you know, quote-unquote ease of the technology, not that some of the stuff is, you know, master, um, and certainly photography is not in that realm of being easy. never will be, no matter what the technology. This is an aside. What I always say in my classes is, you know, Here's the, here's the amazing thing about photography, the miracle of it, if you will, why it's so engaging. You can go out into the field with the best of equipment, spend thousands of dollars, prepare like crazy, and, you know, all sorts of time and effort, making sure that you are in the right place at the right time for the right shoot, and you come back at the end of the day and your pictures still stink. <laughs> That's because the photography just rised up and, you know, right in the side of the head. It's not something that will ever be mastered. Um, but that aside, there's certainly a, a fluid nature the, to the technology and availability of the technology that has uh, encouraged lots and lots of folks to ex- express themselves photographically. That's a good thing. On the flip side of that coin, you're right, there is um, also a lot of bad photography out there. There's a lot of folks who are, quote-unquote, calling themselves professionals. Yeah. really should not lay claim to that title. Uh, there are, are folks who are uh, earning pieces of their living uh, as photographers. And, you know, the work is, um, you know, I I guess you would say questionable. So the democracy of it is fantastic. The passion for it is fantastic. The flip side of that is is, um, there there is, as you you said about design, there is, you know, uh, some, some bad work out there, to be sure. Yeah. So how, so flipping away from the technology itself and looking more at distribution mechanisms with, in, in today's world, contrasted with, say, 30 years ago in, in 78, or was, you know, people were, if you, if you did a photo and you were in the darkroom, you spent a lot of time putting this thing together and dodging and burning and doing that little dance, you finally got a print there was a limited number of people that could see that print. Today, you could spend time in your software of choice perfecting an image and millions of people could see it that evening. Now, how has that changed the way that you approach your photography or has it? It, it absolutely has. It, it's jazzed me up considerably. Uh, in fact, I wrote in the forward of my book that, that uh, when I was a kid, photographically, and I would get assignments from some of the time what used to be Time Inc., now called Time Warner mm-hmm. magazines, I would go up and there was a 28th floor that was the floor for photography. It was the supply area and all the photographers that we all knew about had offices up there. Yeah. And, 
that was one of the treats, really, of being a young photographer and getting that assignment. I'd go up to 28, and I'd go get equipment or film or something like that, and I'd bump into Albert Eisenstadt. Oh. Or Carl Maidans would be up there having coffee. And these, these, uh, these guys were real pros, you know, and they, they sat around a coffee table up there. Sometimes we'd be able to listen in, and they'd offer stories or, or you know, accounts and field notes and this and that. And as I say in my forward of my book, that coffee table atmosphere that's shared only by a few is now the Internet. And there's a lot of people out there teaching and offering photography to millions, as you say, in a heartbeat. Uh, I have a blog, which, again, one of those things, if you had told me even a few years ago I'd be blogging, I would have said, hey, you know, first of all, what's a blog? Secondly, no, I don't think so. But now I find that I truly enjoy it because it's like having a newspaper column work that I do for myself that would, as, as you mentioned, would only be shared by a few, uh, now I can put on my blog and get reactions from people across the board. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Now, do you find yourself shooting your own assignments a lot? You know, like you'll have a, a kind of an idea for a shot in your mind's eye and you just go out and do it? Or are your experiments are mostly when you're, when you're out in the field on paid assignments? Um, no, I'd say that... that um, it's a mix of things at this point. Last year, I did two assignments for the National Geographic. Uh, they encompassed a fair amount of time, and we have our regular run of commercial work. But then in between, uh, because of you know the way I'm able to stitch things together between my commercial and editorial work and the teaching, I'm able to occasionally create opportunities that I can just take a piece of my imagination and photograph it that I'm enjoying a great deal. And that's the kind of material that oftentimes either ends up in a book or a blog. Yeah. Now, so I'm, I'm stuck on this, the, the, this technology thing a little bit, cause we, I've done a lot of interviews and the, there's been a lot of back and forth about technology and, and is it the camera taking the picture and video versus the regular traditional still photography, should they merge? Where where do you fall on the on the the discussion about you know, sort of the incorporation of high definition video into still cameras and photographers having to learn the skill set to become videographers? Do you where do you fall on that? Um, I fall down. <laughs> <laughs> fall um, south. <laughs> I, uh, I, um, I'm tripping on it a bit, I guess. Um, the video thing is cool. Lots of folks are really enjoying, um, um, you know, the, the, not only the ability to do video, but also the fact that, uh, for instance, my own personal experience when um, I put a bit of a video, say, on my blog or on YouTube off of my blog, it tends to be pretty popular. So people are definitely consuming it and interested in it. Yeah. Uh, I'm experimenting with it myself. Some of the, you know, the, the D90 uh, Nikon came out, uh, you know, a while back, and uh, I've had minimal time on that camera, but there's a lot of interesting work being done. Um, Bill Frakes, Sports Illustrated photographer, has been experimenting a lot with video. Um, I, you know, people I respect, uh, Vince LaFerre mm -hmm. did a pretty noteworthy video a while back. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a coming thing. It's it's here. I mean, forget about coming. It's sitting right on our doorsteps. Uh I view it the way I viewed the arrival of digital for me, and I was a bit of a latecomer to digital. I, I shot the first all-digital story for the National Geographic. It was a cover story on 100 Years of Flight, a celebration of aviation and the Wright brothers 
hundredth uh, birthday, and the that story was a future-looking story. So I said to the Geographic, "Let's shoot it with a future-looking technology. Let's let's go digital." And they hemmed and hawed a bit, but they did it. And now, of course, that was the cover of December 2003, and here we are in 2009. About 95% of their coverages are digital. Wow. Obviously a very fast-moving thing. And, and when I confronted the whole digital thing, you know, I was photochrome for 20-plus years. Uh, all of a sudden I realized it was like change or die. It wasn't, wasn't a, a graceful or... Um, a, a what if kind of decision. It wasn't something like, oh, maybe I'll get around to it. It was like, dude, you know, get on the stick and start shooting digital, or you will fade. Yeah. You, you, do you do you feel the same way about high definition video that you you absolutely need to learn that technique, uh, or you'll you'll fade into obscurity? Yes, I don't feel the same way about. I think I need to learn it. I think it'll be a a, a useful tool. B fun to do. Um, will it replace uh, um, that isolated uh, still fragment? Uh, no. It, it, that that slice of time that we've all come to love, known as still photography. No. And I don't think uh, video is particularly discerning in certain ways in terms of quality of light. Um, as high depth as you want to get it when you are moving through a frame and clipping, you know, uh, 30 seconds of, of, you know, a stretch of time and then coming back and looking at it, uh, I think there'll be things that are missing from that declarative emphasis that the still camera brings to the party. Uh, that's a gut call. Is it, is it necessarily the right call? No idea, but that's my feeling. If you read Jay Maisel's guest blog on Scott Kelby actually just today, hmm. So he'll, he refers to numerous situations over time where there was film or video being run of the same event that a still shooter like a Nick Up or a John Philo uh, made a Pulitzer Prize winning photograph out of. And absolutely, I think I share this with lots of people, my memory is etched in still photographs. I do not remember the film. I do not remember the video. I remember the still image. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess time will tell. We're still at the beginning of this. There's only a, a couple of cameras with a couple more having been announced at PMA. But really, for pro shooters, there's only a couple of bodies out there that can do HD. So uh, I think everyone's looking at it with one eye closed right now. Yeah, I think it's, you know, again, it's that thing that you have to keep an eye on. And certainly commercially, some of my clients, uh, last year we, we got a couple of calls. Uh, we didn't get the jobs that we were called on. But... Um, First time that we were asked outright by a client, "Hey, can you also video?" Wow, it's it's out there. Well, it's coming. It's coming. So, uh, speaking about, I wanted to get into a little bit uh, about the Hot Shoe Diaries in this book that that I'm I'm going through right now. It's a brilliant book, and thank you so much for writing it. Uh, but specifically, the the notion that was I don't know if if David Hobby. Uh, invented it or is you know can claim fame to it but the the idea of shooting with small strobes and instead of lugging the big power packs and the heads and the soft boxes and all that stuff around for the for the folks that aren't that haven't been indoctrinated into the whole strobist movement and and shooting with small strobes can you give sort of a uh, the the joe level synopsis about why one might be better than the other well um that's a 
Again, a good, a good question. It's a, a sort of an all-encompassing question because mm-hmm. you touch on a lot of things. First of all, David Hobby and the Strobist uh, community that he really started mm-hmm. is the definitive forum for all of this. I mean, David's one of the best educators out there, and his blog, if, if you're interested in Small Flash, Strobist um, Blogspot is absolutely a, a way station that you must make yeah. you know, on a regular basis because there's so much information there. And what I think is, has, um, and it's, the, it's this sort of streaming technology and trends all coming together. Um, cameras have gotten better. Flashes have gotten better. Now the flashes and the cameras talk to each other. Batteries have gotten better. The small flashes have gotten more powerful. All of this stuff comes together now, and you have an ability to do a job with small flash that you would have automatically done with large flash, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. Bring out the umbrella, bring out the power pack. Now, uh, the quality of light that you can wrangle out of small flash, if you use it in, a, in an interesting and creative way, is pretty phenomenal. The amount of education that's out there about small flash is fairly substantial, too. So, and also the affordability, too. You know, uh, most folks, if they're going to buy a basic digital kit, there'll be a flash and probably a pretty sophisticated flash associated with that purchase. One of the first things people do when they get that kit home and they start playing with it is like, okay, now how do I use this flash? So um, all that stuff has combined, again, ramped up that level of interest. I find small flash to be a really, really wonderful, intuitive way to just extend my imagination, um, take light and use it, use it well, which is, you know, part of the job description of being a photographer. So you wouldn't say so. The drawbacks, specific drawbacks from having that that speedatron. 1200 2400 whatever watt second power battery power pack sitting there uh connected to your strobe so that that is you can replicate that with a, a similar set of small flashes like Nikon SB 800s or 900s and get a similar effect yes you can yes and of course as always because it's photography yes and no <laughs> you know <laughs> sometimes <laughs> you, maybe. you've been doing this long enough you know you know there's always give back um yeah. yes can you do most jobs now with small flash but yes also at the same time is there a tipping point where as a pro as you approach something this job just has big flash written all over it uh, high-pressure things, things where you need a lot of power mm-hmm. or tremendously fast recycle time, arena lighting, um, corporate boards and high-pressure um, executive or celebrity portraiture, that kind of thing. There's also the uh, additional question with an art director walking in, you know, and you walk in with a couple of small flashes, the art director looks at you like you're not professional. You know, so yeah. sometimes there's an Im- impression level that you need to create. Uh, and I'm unabashed about that. When you walk onto the set and everybody's looking at you and the clients there, the art director, et cetera, you walk onto the set, you want them to feel like, oh, okay, this guy's, this guy's got it handled. So, sure. uh, you know, you walk in with a couple of assistants and, and 12 cases of equipment. They're like, oh, whew, they breathe, they're relaxed, you know. I mean, in, in Webster's, you know, next to art director, it, it, it says he or she who is always nervous. <laughs> 
you know, you know, they're nervous people. They want they they a lot of money on a job or a lot of pressure, this and that. They want to know like <laughs> it's all going to work, right? You yeah. know, like yeah, it's going to work. It's not to worry, not to worry. So, so you carry, carry all that stuff. You carry all that stuff there to uh, to to make them feel better. And the giant boxes, you pull out a little SB nine hundred and go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Someday, one of these days, I'm going to try that. You know, like right inside here, it's like you know. Um, Steve Martin and Roxanne, that silly movie that he did years ago. He yeah. was the fire chief, and he showed up to open someone's door who had locked themselves out, and, and he had this big metal container or reached inside of it, and there was nothing inside there but a credit card. Yeah. You know? <laughs> he slid it down the door jam and opened the door and said, okay, you're yeah, done. We're getting there. So so what about uh, light meters? With all this technology, has, has the, the necessity to carry a light meter around to get measurements gone away completely? hasn't gone away to me, uh, completely, but I would say the role of the light meter, certainly in my um, uh, you know, uh, world, has diminished. I was a huge light meter guy, obviously. I, I religiously went into the field with a, a spot meter and an incident meter that could handle available and flash metering. I don't so much anymore, A, because the meters inside my cameras are so sophisticated they really do an amazing job at parsing out an exposure scenario. And they have different modes. They respond to different factors that they never used to. The basic camera meters that I grew up with did not have an RGB capacity, for instance. Yeah. So uh, it has diminished. I don't think it's gone away on a big set, again, with big flash. And I'm looking to establish ratios. Flash meter is definitely uh, a worthwhile and still very current tool. But for my day-to-day work, when I'm oftentimes using small flash, which cannot be metered you know, because of the pre-flash, um, I'm flying really on the camera systems. Yeah. yeah. So for in a, in a big studio situation, say you're shooting a car, you might want to make sure you have that. But if you're, uh, you're in the ninja strobist school of thought, you could probably leave that behind right now. So what about gear? You know, what, what kind of gear do you do you carry around, or do you, or for example, bodies? What kind of what kind of bodies do you use to shoot with, and flashes, and that sort of thing? Well, I use uh, the D3 as my camera of choice right now. I know there's a D3X out there. I have limited experience with it, but I, as a tool right now, it's probably in the future for me. My first off, the D3 makes an amazing file, yeah. and secondly. Uh, Oftentimes, the jobs I have, speed is really an issue. So the 3X is a slower camera than the... I have... Uh, my, my camera, my field camera choice right now remains the D. And uh, coupling up with that, I have some older SB800 units, which were fantastic flashes. And I've uh, linked those up now with newer uh, 900s. And I take probably on your average job, uh, when I go into the field, I'll take at least four, maybe six uh, small flashes with clamping and umbrella adapters and this and that, rig them or place them. Basic lenses, three lenses that always go with me, 1424, 2470, 70 to 200. My luxury lens that I usually bring with me is a 200 F2. Wonderful lens, uh, 
incredibly sharp. I use it for portraiture, and I also shoot a lot of dance and theater, so that extra speed is very handy. Yeah. On that, if I if I really am going to be on the road for a while and feel a need, I'll take a 105. Our, uh, so that's really about it. I have a TC 1.7 that goes out with my 200 F2 that that converts it to a really fast, you know, longer piece of glass, and that and that converter is very very sharp, still diminishing of quality by use. Wow. Uh, beyond that, you know, a couple of my older full frames. Uh, I just bought the new 50 millimeter, the 51.4. Wow. Amazingly sharp lens. So you know the new, the new, um, you know, liberation. Really, I guess you say of having the full frame again has caused me to pull out a couple of my older lenses too, like my 180-28, favorite lens of mine. So mm-hmm. small, uh, fast, and sharp. Yeah. Oh, what about what about software? What are you using to post process? Well, I'm a I'm an Apple guy, you know, a Mac guy. MacBook Pro uh, is what I what I work on, and um, the organizing tool of choice for the studio is Aperture. Mm-hmm. That uh, to make sure, you know, we tr- do our best to stay organized. I I say that oh, we make sure we're organized. I would be that would be linked to a situation that doesn't exist um, really. We we are pretty fast-paced, and we're probably in the same boat with lots of folks in terms of trying to stay af- stay afloat and stay on top of our organizational needs of all our digital files. Right. Aperture is a very elegant tool, and we like it. Um, beyond that, the, um, you know, I use CS4 as uh, to the extent that I can. I'm not a big Photoshop guy. Uh, thankfully, my assistants are much better at it than I am, so I, I kind of leave those, you know, shaping and printing and Final tweaking of, of imagery. M. Yeah. See, software-wise, that's that's kind of about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I I bring with me external drives, you know, because I'm always trying to free, keep my computer as free as I can. Uh, getting slowed down with a lot of files. Uh, bring an array of externals. Usually use the lacy ruggeds. Frederick, yeah, here? I'm still here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think we may have a, we may have had a uh, little Skype hiccup, but keep going. Okay. <laughs> um, trying to think uh, of other stuff that uh, we use on a regular basis. When we do to, do go to a bigger flash job, we use Ellen Chrome. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Ranger Pack has become kind of my 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 little Bible when I I use large flash. Uh, honestly. Powerful and dependable field unit, battery operated, 1100 watt seconds. And then for uh, light shaping tools for my small flashes, I, uh, when I go into the field, I, I bring the LumaQuest series of attachments. Them mm. a great deal. Uh, really good, small, fast light shapers. I also use the Honol stuff. Uh, David Honol came up with a, a line of, of uh, really kind of cool shaping tools like grids and snoops. And, uh, you know, I also use Lastolite a great deal. Lastolite makes a thing called Tri-Grip, which has a handle. It's kind of triangular in shape. You select light with them. And then um, I also 
I also use their bigger um, last light skylight panels, which are 3x3, 3x6, 6x6. And I oftentimes pump multiple small flash through those, and I get a real good quality of of light, very, very akin to a softbox quality of light. Wow. So uh, just to, to wrap it up a little bit, so advice to new photographers. So people that are are sort of jumping into photography, maybe they just picked up your book or maybe the last book and they're, they're in that sponge mode trying to learn everything they can. What would be your advice to them on places to go either online or off to to expand their knowledge and, and build up that, that skill set? Well, uh couple of different sources. Obviously, I already mentioned one, uh, David Hobby and, and Strobus. Yep. Uh, and uh, a couple other really good resources. Moose Peterson has a very extensive website with, with a lot of PDFs that you can just download, you know, with various camera techniques, that uh, panorama uh, techniques, art techniques, you name it. That's a really good source. Uh, Scott Kelby's blog is kind of this collective uh bundling of information and yeah. advice that's always really, really on top of it. Yeah. That's got a huge voice in the industry. Uh, you know, depending on which way you go, too. I mean, there's a um, really good website uh, that's out there uh, that, talk, that often talks about certain flash techniques and tether techniques. It's called pixelated.com. Uh, it's run by my friend Phil Arena, mm-hmm. who's a good teacher. There's a whole array of, of people out there who are kind of you know, I think very generously, kind of doing a brain dump. You know, Chase Jarvis has a really great blog. Uh, there, there's tons of information that kind of an inside look at the way Chase approaches kind of really seriously big jobs that he gets. And there's also a lot of uh, expression that he makes about how to keep your creative soul alive. Yeah. Um, um, uh, a crazy friend of mine, Drew Gardner. Uh, has a blog uh, that's pretty cool. He does a lot of just really whacked out big production fashion, crazy stuff. A lot of fun to look at. Uh, Dave Black has a series of of uh, tutorials he runs off of his site called Workshops at the Ranch. He really runs through a lot of issues that confront photographers. So the information is definitely out there. Photographers are sharing at a at a very rapid rate. Uh, if you are Starting on a path with, say, small flash, I would, you know, uh, you could throw this into the realm of shameless plug, but I think the the Hachu Diaries is a look at uh, various uses of small flash, how to go about it. You know, there's over a hundred pages of solutions that involve one light. These. So what's what was the the idea behind the Hachu Diaries just from the beginning? The the you know, from the, the moment it clicks, that that book was, was or just why don't I let you explain it? So what was your thinking behind that previous book, and, and what's the thinking behind this one? Well, both books share the same voice, which is, is you know, pretty irreverent um, type of a voice. I don't take myself or don't take this industry all that seriously. Uh, I take the mission of, of shooting pictures very seriously and the quality and that needs to be brought to the table and all of that. But, you know, I, I, I poke fun at myself, and, and a lot of things that happen out in the field are de facto humorous and uh, ironical and all those kinds of things. So I, I do take a pretty breezy tone in both books. The Moment It Clicks was kind of a, an overall look at the, at 
being a photographer for a long time, and uh, you could call it life lessons, you know, learned, um, you know, in the midst of all of this, and as well as uh, certain technical issues and approaches, philosophy, relationships, light, all those things. David, I think, uh, David Hobby described it uh, uh, very accurately as sitting around and, and just having a few beers and talking about photography. Yeah. Um, the same tone is applied to the Hachu Diaries, but the Hachu Diaries is very specifically directed towards the use of small flash and is therefore more instructional. There's more f-stops and buttons and dials and wheels in there. Would you say it's targeted at uh, beginners, intermediates, or, or advanced amateurs? Across the board. It starts real slow, and it's a complete brain up from very simple issues to much more complicated ones. So if, if I read this book cover to cover and absorb everything, will I be Joe McNally? No, and that would be something <laughs> you'll be eminently or wonderfully thankful for at the end of it. Trust me. Um, um, but you will, um, I think if you read it cover to cover and kind of experiment with some of the notions in there, I think you'll definitely expand the notion certainly of what's possible with small flash. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, between this book, I think, and, uh, watching David Hobby's strobist video, you know, his, his the, the DVD set that he put out, you know, I new enthusiasm for small flashes and just sort of being jazzed about all the potential that you can do with these things and, and happy to pull the old small flashes out of my closet. So <laughs> thank you for writing it again. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you uh, taking the taking the time to talk about it. No, no, it's. I think it's important. So, in, in closing, any advice to photographers? We're in a, we're in a down economy right now, and there's a lot of photographers, a lot of people considering sort of jumping into the the world of commercial photography, whether they should or they shouldn't, you know, or or becoming quote unquote professional photographers. Uh, do you have any advice to those folks uh, on how to go about it, or if they should or if they shouldn't, that kind of thing? Um, well, as Jay Maisel always says, and a mentor and a friend, um, if you're crazy enough to get into this business, you might just be crazy enough to succeed. Um, is it a done deal, a lock solid, um, you know, kind of guaranteed proposition? By no means. Uh, it's, it's fraught with difficulty and uncertainty. Always has been. Never been an easy thing to do to be a photographer, in particular a freelance photographer. Now, uh, the amazing thing that's happened, as I mentioned, this tremendous upswing and, and surge in interest in photography has occurred, uh, having kind of two sides to it. The fact is lots of people are participating. Uh, perhaps what you might look at as the downside of that is there's also lots of people competing to photographers, competing for work, and that ha- has uh, both a positive and a negative effect on the market. A lot of energy in the marketplace. But there's also a lot of people who will do jobs um, that you know, probably should command more of a fee, and I don't even want to get into that aspect of it. But um, the advice I would have is this is a passion for you. This is, if this is absolutely captivating for you, uh, then it's something that simply uh, is like an itch that can't be scratched unless you go and do it. Try it. But be prepared for um, a ton of hard work. Too many folks get into this business, uh, think they want to get into it. It's all, uh, you know, first class air tickets and beautiful models and exotic locations. 
that would be the wrong answer. Yeah, yeah. So be realistic, uh, right? Be absolutely realistic. I just came off of a road trip. I, I just am home today after 37 days on the road. Ouch. I'm pretty beat up. And you, and you took time for this interview. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, well, uh, happy to do it. Uh, it's it's uh, physically demanding, and it has a lot of emotional cost as well. You're separated from your family. My history as a photographer, I've, I've been in a time where I couldn't really speak to anybody because I didn't speak the language. Yeah. I could talk to was my fixer. Yeah. That has tolls, too. There's a, the adventure and the excitement of discovery, and there's also the downside of it, too, in that it can be a very isolated, uh, difficult process. So you gotta you got to weigh it. You weigh it and go into it with both your eyes open. Yeah. Well, I would I would definitely encourage uh, the listeners to to check out the Hachu Diaries. I'm I'm about a third of the way through the book now, and it's riveting. It's definitely written from your voice. It's it's entertaining. It's irreverent, and it's uh, it's a really good read. And I'm glued to it. So thank you very much for writing it. And where where can people learn more about Joe McNally? Well, you can log on to my blog, um, which is is well, if you just kind of kind of Google Joe McNally, the blog should come up, but the actual, um, the, the blog address is uh, joemcnally.com backslash blog backslash. In my blog, it's, I try to keep it fairly regularly, two to three times a week, and it's, again, it's an irreverent look at kind of, you know, the various machinations of being a photographer. Yeah. And and they can the the book itself they can link to it from they can get to the book from your blog of course but they can also get it on Amazon.com or Peach Pit Press or any number of fine uh, brick and mortar retailers right absolutely absolutely great well thank you so much Joe McNally for taking the time to uh, to speak with me this has been a great interview I, I I think I got through most of my questions but that your answers spurred so many more questions we don't have time for. So I think we're going to have to have you back again. (laughs) Sounds good to me. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Frederick. So that was Joe McNally. If you want to learn more about Joe, you can click on the links in the show notes or uh, head over to his blog. You can just Google Joe McNally and you can find all the places where he's present at. Also, I would highly suggest, I think we mentioned this in the interview, I'd highly suggest heading over to kelbytraining.com and uh, he's got a lot of interesting videos up there on using small speed lights and photographic technique and all that stuff. So hours of fun for the whole family. So let's on to let's move on to some listener questions. Uh, and today we're going to uh, actually just toss this first question off to Ron Brinkman. Ron, you still on the line? I, I'm still here. <laughs> What's the question? Bring it on. <laughs> it's uh, it's in there. So let me let me read it out to you. This is from a listener by the name of Dylan. Uh, he wants to understand bit depth a little more. He says, "Hi, Twip. First, uh, was it was this the part? Was this the part where we agreed ahead of time that I would read the question? Yeah, well? you were kind of throwing it back to me, but I was going to keep it going. So you actually read the question now that you've <laughs> outed yourself. <laughs> is that the way we're doing this now? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I I do recall the meeting now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> curmudgeon old man over there we we have a new listener question from listener dylan let me just read it edit so so dylan says i have a question about bit depth i shoot with a canon 5d mark ii which is 14 bits when i look at the info for a jpeg file it says they are 8-bit but my raw files are 16-bit are those bit depths standard for those file formats and if so does that mean that 
part of shooting JPEG means I will instantly reduce my images from 14 to 18 bits. Yes, that's true. Hang on a second. I'll talk about it a little bit more. Uh, if so, I will buy a 4-terabyte drobo and never shoot JPEG again. Possibly a good idea. Also, there are three bit depth options for editing in Photoshop, being 8, 16, and 32. My understanding is that increasing the bit depth beyond the file's default is only really adding to the file size while not increasing image quality. Is that assumption correct? Hey, Ron, uh, you, have, you, have about- a whole, you have a whole chapter of this in your book. Well, as a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time talking about a bit, bit depth in my books, I mean, and, and it's the kind of thing where I could probably talk for a whole chapter's worth of time here as well. So I, I'll try to try to kind of boil it down a little bit. And the bottom line is that yes, more a bit depth is good. The more the more bits you have to represent uh, an image or to represent color, really, is is good in the sense that it gives you a finer bit of. Uh, gradation between different uh, colors but the uh, the thing is you, you, you know you've got to sort of balance that off with uh, the amount of storage space that it may take so yes if you're shooting if you're going to JPEG it's an 8-bit file format by default and, and yeah you're throwing away anything that might have been beyond that that's one of the reasons why you don't really want to shoot natively to JPEG uh, and why you tend to shoot raw your sensor may run at a depending on your sensor it may shoot at a different sort of bit depth uh, depends on the sensor and the, on the high-end cannons now and the Nikons they capture 14 bits worth of data and if you're shooting to a raw file then uh, sure you're, you're, you're keeping everything in there and the main reason why you want to have more bit depth is not so much for that final output image because JPEG is going to look fine but it's for the intermediate stuff and if you are planning to do anything to the image, planning to adjust levels or change brightness or that sort of thing, then you, you know you want to you start with as much as you've got. You want to start with a raw file, tweak it how much you want, and then when you output it, it's probably fine to go to JPEG. So, I, you know, I, that is why part of the reason why we always say, just shoot raw, get yourself the Drobo like you suggested, and go ahead and store all that, and use JPEG as sort of your output medium. I would agree. Steve Simon, let's move on to. <laughs> I would agree. That's all I get. That's it. That. That's it. Yeah, you're. I'm gonna. Right, you, I'm gonna you, let you, you go with that one. All. I'm gonna let you go with that. You norm, normally I would dive into that one, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we really we're, could do a long, long. We, we could just yeah. take that one and just make a show out of it. So rather than beat it to death like I've been known to do on some topics, I will. <laughs> uh, I will move on to to the next one, which is Steve Simon. Steve, the next question is yours. You're up. Oh, okay. Um, uh, listener Mary Hui from Hong Kong has asked us, some schoolmates and I are planning to host a photography exhibition at school as part of a high school project, and they want some pointers on how they should run and finance this, what should we print on, all that kind of stuff. And if we were to host an auction, what are the legalities concerning copyright to be aware of? Well, I think obviously it's you don't probably have a lot of resources, so um, I think uh, you could probably go out, um, Mary, and, and ask your maybe local uh, camera retailer if maybe they'd like to contribute to this because I think that uh, it's probably um, something that they might want to get behind. And they might be able to donate some prizes that could be auctioned off or uh, maybe the ink and materials. Uh, you don't need expensive printers to get this done. 
um, uh, some of the good Epson photo printers and, and HP and Canon and whatever you have access to uh, would probably do the, do the job. As far as uh, mounting the exhibition, if you can get a framing store in your area to maybe want to help you out. But that being said, if that doesn't work, some magnetic paint and some magnets could allow you to post up those pictures without hurting them. Uh, fishing wire with clips will allow you to put the pictures up the way you want to do it very cheaply. Um, and uh, I think that uh, you can do it without uh, too much difficulty. Uh, you might want to have an auction. You could auction off these prints maybe to help pay for the cost of the exhibit and give the, the balance to a charity of your choice. And lastly, legalities as far as copyright, that's not an issue, Mary, because um, these prints are only going to be used for exhibition purposes. Uh, you could sell them as art pieces and not have to worry about copyright. The photographers, the high school students that made them own the copyright, and uh, that, that won't be a problem. Steve, a quick question for you. So on displaying your work, like as a, as a photographer, do you display your work in your house or, or do you not? do that i know a lot of people fall on the side of they don't like to see their stuff hanging around them and some people just cover their houses in their their own photography where yeah. do you fall in there um i i fall in my in my in my office area i have some you know stuff at my first camera i've got some photos up on bulletin boards i don't feel i have sort of a permanent house yet <laughs> that i'm going to necessarily invest in putting stuff up i guess i would fall in not putting my stuff up i just haven't been i'm in new york city i'm in a small space uh, i haven't really uh, gotten around to being that organized to maybe even consider it. Uh, I know a lot of photographers that do, and I think it's a great thing. Um, what I like is, you know, when people put those shelves up so that they could change the pictures easily but without having to actually, you know, put them up as part of, you know, banging nails and stuff. I like. Right. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, IKEA has some pretty cool little ledge type shelves yeah. with a little lip on them that you can put photos on. Very interesting. The next listener question is from Harley. And Harley says, do you use protective filters, for example, UV filters on your lenses? If not, why not? If so, what's the proper way to remove smudges and fingerprints from them? Thanks. Uh, I would say, and I'll throw this out to the group, but I would say, uh, you know, I went to this, this workshop with a photographer and a friend of mine, Seth Resnick. And he falls on the standpoint of or on the position of not putting anything on the front of your lens anymore because the coating on the lenses are uh, you know, the coating on, that are on, on today's lenses are, are designed to sort of give you the optimal color balance and uh, specularity, whatever, onto your sensor. And if you put something or a piece of glass between your subject and your sensor, your all bets are off with regard to what the engineers designed that lens and sensor for. So, you know, I would say, and what I've done is I've taken all the filters off and I'm just very careful with my lenses. I put cat lens caps on them, you know, when they're in the bag and all that. But when I'm shooting, there's typically nothing on the front of my lens. Where do you guys fall on that? Yeah. Fred, I, ju I just wanted to add, to add uh, as far as taking the plastic off the couch, so to speak, and mm -hmm. I, maybe we've talked about it before, I, I, I did a test where I finally said, you know what, I'm just going to take that you know, high-quality UV filter off the front of the lens and not let anything stand behind uh, or stand in front of that great uh, you know, Nikon glass or whatever you're using. I'm sure it's good stuff. Uh, and, and in the end, there was no difference that I could ever find 
and uh, and and there was just absolutely no difference. So I decided, well, I'm just going to always keep a high quality UV filter for protection for resale value. If I ever want to sell the lens, because people are very picky about buying stuff used. And then I bought a 14 to 24 Nikon, which does not allow you to put anything in front of it. So there, that that's made up for you. But I would recommend to people get a high quality, same brand uh, UV filter and and keep it on just for for protection and uh, for future resale. Yeah, I, I did, I've done a little testing on this too and looked into it. And the, the I think the important point to make is if you're shooting in a, in a studio like you were, Steve, where it's a very controlled lighting environment, mm-hmm. yeah, you're going to be really hard-pressed to, to see anything. You, it's almost impossible if you've got a good filter on there. The one thing to really be aware of, though, is that if you've got a filter on your, on your lens and you're out in the field, yeah, it's much more likely to pick up some stray light coming at an angle into it. So if you're shooting with you know your sun off to your side or something like that, that's where filters can get dangerous. They can introduce some haze because they'll catch that light. Whereas something with a, uh, you know, especially if you don't have some sort of a hood on there to block it out. So it, it's sort of situation dependent. I have to admit, I, I I think we've talked about this before, but I tend to use it as a as, as my lens cap. <laughs> right. So, uh, right. So, so that I I have a, a you know on there, and I'm still fairly careful with it, but I. And sometimes we'll still put the lens cap on when I'm traveling. But when I'm walking around, I just have my – I've taken my lens cap off because I don't want to pick it up and, and have to think about it. I just – so I have the camera on when I'm walking through the street. I have uh, that – you know, I have the uh, – a cleaned um, uh, uh, protector on – you know, UV filter on the front uh, that I will – if I need to pick something up and shoot in a hurry, it's there. But I don't feel like I have to worry every moment about scratching the front of my lens. Uh, and then after that, I mean, when I'm really shooting and I've decided I'm in the shooting mode, uh, I usually take the filter off. Uh, and I do find that it's pretty easy to clean. I mean, if, if I'm in the shooting mode, I'm, I'm also conscious of where the front of the lens is. And I'm not running it into things generally. And uh, the and I do I do think that generally getting dust and everything else off, most of these fil- most of these lenses are pretty easy to clean, especially when you have one of those. We talked about it earlier. A little, you know. And you guys might want to talk about this a little bit, but my pattern is, you know, blow it really uh, with one of the little, uh, with some kind of uh, lens blower, and then you know, and blow off as much as you can, and then and then brush it really, really carefully. Yeah. And and then use then I have this one of those pens that I kind of squeegee all the rest of the 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 stuff off of, uh, and it's but it's that three three step process to make sure that I'm not getting a large piece of something scratching up against the lens. Very yeah. Good. But isn't it true that often you end up either, uh, you know, blowing the front, using the, your breath to sort of, you know, I've, I've been in situations and when the filter's on where things get dirty and I'll just have to improvise and, and, and uh, you know, put my breath on the glass, and, you know, that, that's not pretty. And then just wipe it with whatever I had. Uh, I should not admit to that. Okay, can we edit that out? <laughs> um, you know, I'm trying not to laugh out loud here. <laughs> I've definitely, but, I've definitely been there. You know, but it yeah. does. What happens is if you repeatedly do it with your like with something that isn't really a, a good uh, piece of material, uh, what yeah. you end up with is these micro scratches that are very hard. You know, that, that that start to show up where it's starting to nick it. And so I've learned to just try to keep one of those lens cleaning pens in my front pocket while I'm shooting. And, yeah. And I meticulously clean it all the time. So just I want to remind the listeners, uh, if you if you want to get your question into us, uh, you can email it to twitpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and when you do send us those, let us just just do us a favor and let us know where you're emailing from. It's always nice to know where our listeners are listening from. 
Coming up next week on This Week in Photography, we're going to have uh, Robert Evans. He's a he's a celebrity wedding photographer who uh, has done weddings for the likes of Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston and I don't know, all those those famous people that are down in the L.A. area. So he's that guy and he's agreed to talk to us and he'll be in next week's show. If uh, and also he's a uh, he, he, sort of continuing on with what we were talking about earlier with regard to the convergence of video and still photography. Robert and his uh, the the guy that he shoots with Kurt Aponovich are going around the country, sort of singing the praises of the five D and talking about the convergence of still and videography. And they put together a tour called Fusion. So uh, definitely check that out. You can Google it or just head over to robertevansphotography.com or robertevans.com or just google robert evans you'll find him and uh check that out if you're interested in learning more and seeing how photographers particularly wedding photographers are starting to add in this high definition video into their workflow and coming up in between weeks uh alex do we have any uh, more video inserts that are going to be stuck into the feed uh, we're going to slow down for just a little while. Uh, we're probably going to do some more. We'll probably pick up some more video uh, in the next couple of weeks. I have a very hard travel schedule, so and I know that all of our, our production schedule here is pretty heavy. So we're going to uh, we, we put out a whole bunch of them, and I think we're going to give everybody a rest, uh, probably until NAB. There's, there's generally some photog- photography-based things to cover at NAB that we didn't see at PMA. So I, I expect to have two or three come out at uh, uh, around the middle of april but uh we're gonna take a rest for uh, a week or two very cool all right and that's it where where can people find you alex if they want to learn more about you and uh, just keep up with your antics uh the best place to find me is on the twitters all of them all of them <laughs> alex Lindsay on the twitters alex Lindsay, ron brinkman where can people follow you uh, on twitter it's ron brinkman r-o-n-b-r-i-n-k-m-a-n-n and two my ends. blog is two ends, three ends, four ends. You count them all. <laughs> and my blog is digitalcomposting.com, although it hasn't gotten a whole lot of love lately, but soon. A whole lot of love in terms of traffic or you posting? Well, I think the two may be related because <laughs> <laughs> definitely the second one. And I haven't checked the first, but I would imagine that probably is, uh, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're definitely related. It'll be much better once he gets it on Squarespace. There you go. Yeah, thinking about it. Move it over. Steve Simon, where are you at? Well, I, last couple of times I, I kept saying, uh, name your dreamassignment.com. It's a contest that allows you to uh, post your photo project and try and get votes for it, and you can vote for as many as you want. Sadly, I only have about 50 votes uh, for mine, and the winning numbers are like 900, but I figured I'd tell people anyway. They have to sign in for it and uh, just click my name, Steve Simon, check out my grandmother's spirit idea, vote for it, send me a link, and I'll maybe vote for yours if, if I think it's good. Uh, it's just a great uh, opportunity, and we'll have to see how it all shakes down in the end. It's not just the quantity, but then ultimately judges will will judge um, which one uh, ends up winning. But it's $50,000 to go do your dream assignment, so wow. it makes, makes uh, it would be it would be pretty something. It would be a dream. That's fair. My dream would be to get that fifty thousand dollars and go shoot something, like do a photo walk locally and keep the forty nine thousand <laughs> and buy some gear with it. <laughs> uh, I, I think your your dream will do well on this uh, contest, Fred. I'm sure. There you go, Aaron Mailer. Where can people find you? 
Uh, you can certainly find me on Twitter, uh, HalfPress, H-A-L-F-P-R-E-S-S, and on my blog, HalfPress.com, which pretty much like Ron's has not been getting much love lately. I don't think I've posted since the Obama inauguration, so I'll try and get my button gear this weekend and get a little update on there. I think they're, they call those cobweb blogs, don't they? Yeah. 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 But for those people that have never visited either of our blogs, there's plenty of excellent content up there for the <laughs> Very first good time. Point. You just got to turn up that timestamp and it'll be all good. You know, so all right. Follow me on Twitter and then follow the link from there. How about that? Excellent. And if you're looking for me, uh, Frederick, you can find me at, on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Frederick Van or at my blog, frederickvan.com or the video blog, frederickvan.tv. And that's it. That's it for this show. It's time to take that lens cap off. 